October 2024 will make uh, significant steps in uh, decentralizing the sequencer and the prover. Rename the tagline Starkware Quantum Proof. That's all. That's all you need. <laughs> well, we use the word quantum here and there uh, quite a lot, so you know. I'm pretty confident that uh, during 2024 uh, on Starknet we will see capacity for uh, you know a thousand to two thousand TPS. Hey guys, welcome back to Beneath the Layers by Offchain Labs. I'm your host, Hunter, and uh, today we'll be speaking with Ellie Bensassen, co-founder and president at Starkware. Uh, this is going to be a very exciting episode today. Uh, we actually speak about cryptography's impact in the real world, uh, you know, how Starkware plans on scaling with ZK, uh, as well as technically validity proofs, and of course, where decentralization of that tech uh, fits in to the whole kind of grand scheme of things. Uh, but that being said, like I said, very interesting conversation. It's a very technical one too. So, you know, definitely bear with me if you're not the, the most technical person, but it, it definitely is eye-opening. Uh, he's great at explaining things. And we did have, end up having a very, very thoughtful conversation around uh, cryptography, privacy, and just scaling, just generally speaking. So that being said, hope you guys enjoy it. Stay tuned. All right, Ellie, what's going on? How are we doing? Pretty good. How are you, Hunter? Great to be here. Doing great. Yes, of course. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you um, for having me on. Oh, yeah. yeah. We're, we're going to talk about a, a, ton of, a ton of good stuff today. Um, I'll try to keep up, of course, but, you know, we'll see. I, I, you know, as, as someone who does mainly community stuff, I have a little bit of a background in, in engineering from, from my school's past, but nothing related to cryptography. So, <laughs> okay. um, I do want to jump into this one a little differently than, than most. Um, as someone who, you know, big part of your life has been studying cryptography and all things related to kind of security and comm sci, uh, why should the everyday person care about cryptography in your mind? Um, that's a really good question. Um, cryptography is what allows you to attain on the um, digital, in the digital world, it allows you things like privacy, integrity, um, which are needed for um, things like freedom and uh, for, you know, reputation and basing social interactions. So if you go online, it's like really, really important that uh, you have these things. So think of it as a, a lot of math in the service of some basic human needs and the service of uh, human dignity. Yeah, I, I feel like it almost kind of, it's the kind of thing I guess that translates to a lot of the, like you were saying, like the real world things that we use. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I think at least for me, Maybe one place where I might have saw it failing, and I'm not sure, was I was using this kind of uh, password manager at some point. And I think that password manager happened to get breached. The data was breached. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, okay, I thought this was supposed to be like safe, where I'm supposed to store all my data. Now, like, it's just, so is, do you think that's a kind of a form of that uh, kind of cryptography being a kind of key component of helping secure these systems? Or is that kind of just separately? Uh, yeah, it's about, uh, I mean, it's about your human dignity, your privacy, your basic rights when you go online. And today, so much of what we care about is online, that we need these things uh, in order to uh, protect us and uh, 
allow us to uh, interact online safely. Um, yeah, so like if your password manager gets uh, hacked and then people can uh, compromise your privacy and know things about you that, uh, you know, violate your human dignity. And uh, we don't want that. Cryptography is what prevents it. And now, nowadays, I get emails from Wendy's telling me that people are trying to reset my password. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Ever since that day. Yeah. Um, what got you interested in, in, into cryptography then? Was it that notion of kind of protecting like uh, people's individual kind of privacy rights or is it related in any way? No, I came for it from like completely from left field. I was interested in uh, math and theoretical computer science and something called uh, computational complexity. And the reason I was interested in that was mostly due to my you know, human curiosity and just, uh, it's really beautiful. And I started working on things that are not even really uh, defined as cryptography in, in the world I was operating in. Again, they're defined as something slightly different. Um, but then at some point, I mean, this was roughly a decade ago, I, well, I, first I started dabbling in implementing some of the protocols that I invented, uh, which was a very weird notion for a theoretician to do. But, and I don't, to this day, I don't exactly know why I did it. It wasn't that I thought that this would have any practical application. I think it was just, uh, I wanted to do more stuff or new stuff or practical stuff. And then at some point, it turned out that this practical stuff is actually uh, important in the context of blockchains. So I went there. Interesting. And, uh, you know, I, I took a couple of math classes myself. So when, we, when you're saying like you're kind of implementing these things, are we talking about like, for example, like I know like, there's like the Lagrange's theorem, for example, you, you're out here making theorems, you're kind of like making these new types of, uh, I don't know, I guess like mathematical proofs, <laughs> or are we talking about something else? Well, back in the day, I was in the business of writing, you know, definitions, claims, lemmas, theorems, okay. uh, conjectures, and proving, uh, well, the theorems and lemmas. Yeah, so it was like very, very mathy. Um, yeah, I did that for, I guess, a decade and a half, something like that. Wow. Yeah, definitely. Wow, look at that. And yeah. so what was, the, what was the transition like then, going from like a full-time professor into, into crypto then, as like an entrepreneur, would you say? It was very uh, natural and gradual and a lot of fun. I, I enjoyed my theoretician days a lot, but I also enjoyed the transition period and I uh, enjoy what I'm doing now. Um, it's very stimulating. So in the beginning, I wrote a bunch of papers and then some of those papers started dealing with more practical stuff. So one important one was the uh, Snarks for C paper that talked about implementing, you know, a compiler from C into uh, Snarks. And then uh, based on that, we did the zero cache paper, which said, oh, you can do it not just from, for any arbitrary C programs, you can actually do it for bringing privacy onto uh, Bitcoin. That was how it was crafted. And then that led to Zcash being founded. So I watched it a bit from the side and uh, kept on doing math and, you know, slowly by slowly turned into a, an entrepreneur, a crypto entrepreneur. It's like a love story, but built on math. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have to ask you too, especially about Zcash. I, I think 
for a lot of people maybe that were involved in crypto back in like I want to say 2017, 2018, like Zcash was definitely one of like 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 the bigger talks of the town, especially because I feel like back then there was a lot more of a focus on or a lot more of like I guess an alignment of crypto and privacy. Like it was almost kind of a given, like hey, like one of these private privacy based blockchains is going to be kind of the biggest thing because that's what crypto brings. Um, but it feels like it's kind of uh, like like the narrative has shifted a little shifted a little bit uh, since then. Uh, like, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, it will come back, but the big challenge with uh, privacy is in the UX or on the UX front, meaning, right. um, you know, just you have to pay so much in terms of UX. I'm not talking about dollar cost. Um, you have to, it's, it's very cumbersome to work with uh, privacy technology for uh, basic transactions and also even more so for complicated, uh, you know, smart contracts. It's a very challenging problem. And then it manifests, uh, this difficulty is manifested in the user experience. And then you as a user have to ask yourself, okay, you know, I want shit done. Now, yeah, if I really care about privacy, it's going to be, you know, 10 clicks and uh, downloading software and doing a whole bunch of stuff and, and, you know, getting funds from my credit card onto whatever platform it is in this way is like really, really cumbersome. Or you could just, uh, you know, with a single press of a button, buy your NFT or, you know, do a swap or something. And this is still the situation today. So I think privacy will come back, but it will come back uh, a little bit like the way it entered uh, the Web2 space. So at some point, protocols said this is a feature that users must have and we will make it um, seamless to them to use. So, you know, we're talking right now over something that is SSL secured, but we didn't have to click any button that comes out of the box. So at some point, much later, it will be a few years from now, um, you know, all major protocols are going to say, okay, we figured it out. Here's something you don't need to do anything about it. You'll get the SSL version of blockchain. That's that's a really good point, actually. And it's funny because I'm almost kind of torn in, uh, in like seeing like it's one of those things where it's like, OK, like you just said, user does not care about it. Um, at the end of the day, like, you know, from my perspective, I wouldn't I wouldn't even know. Right. If it's SSL secured or not. Um, but companies, I think, whether they were mandated to or not, said, hey, like there may be private or kind of confidential information being passed. So we're going to we're going to do this by default, I think. But I think with crypto, it feels like, like I, I think like the nature of it is like, you know, with, with these public blockchains, there doesn't feel like a need to do that because the, expect, the expectation is that all this stuff is public already, right? Um, I'm, I, you know, I don't, I don't know. My, my... Well, um, all the stuff is public, but you don't really have an alternative. And it goes right. hand in hand with the fact that for your serious business dealings, uh, if you're a company, you're not going to use blockchain, uh, you know, uh, if you think about Boeing or Airbus or some okay. big uh, web to, you know, some big enterprise today, it's, it just can't use uh, blockchain because of these things. So if it would use or allow it, it would go through some other third party and get some sort of obfuscation. And that's the way it's solved today. But um, at some point, you know, a lot of businesses, small and large, are going to come in and they're going to say, it's not fine that just, you know, Chainalysis can learn everything about our business and if our competitors want to, so can they. So we'll get there, but it will take some time. 
do you think it's too early to kind of point out a particular kind of technology? Like and in this case, maybe like Monero would have been, I think, the other alternative back then, you know, ring signatures and all that. Yeah. Um, do you think this is too early to pick a, one privacy over the other or, or is it kind of the same? Um, I think it would still be, well, it would either be a full-blown uh, ZK, I'm talking about privacy, or, you know, one level above, which is something like uh, MPC, or which is secure multi-party computation or uh, fully anomorphic encryption. Um, probably I would still vote it would be ZK just because uh, it's simpler and it covers a lot of use cases. There are some uh, some things that you can only do properly, you know, in a privacy-preserving, decentralized way with things like MPC. But uh, that's going to be, you know, that's going to come much later, and it, it limits your design space and uh, UX uh, even more. So probably ZK. Yeah, I don't think ring signatures. Just ZK by by now is so. Uh, you know, so well developed that I wouldn't go for something lesser like uh, that has only very limited functionality, like ring signatures or accumulators or stuff like that. There's no reason for that. Totally. Yeah. No, I'm definitely looking forward to like you know the the proliferation of more kind of like zk focused rollups or chains. Um, you know, I honestly I do think that thing with Tornado Cash and kind of the sanctions like. I think that I think turned a lot of people off, unfortunately, to building some of that stuff in the open. Um, yeah, even though, again, I would sure that that gave sort of a, a bit of a backlash. But even before that, right, you mm. know, between uh, the regulatory um, constraints and the uh, just very tough UX problem, I would say it's 90 percent because the, it wasn't catching on even before the uh, tornado cash sanctioning by OFAC. It was already, uh, you know, this sort of niche thing that didn't have much traction before that. So, um, but again, it's not going anywhere. Like privacy will be a standard out of the box feature for many things done on blockchain in the future. Um, and in this context, I mean, there are also these very interesting middle grounds. I'll give a few examples. Um, well, definitely mixers are one version of uh, privacy. Whenever you go to a centralized exchange, and I know of many companies and entities that the way they actually do mixing from the um, general public is by going through centralized exchanges. That's a very common operation. And then I would say even that probably most of the entities that are pure Web3 uh, companies and DAOs do that. Um, and they, you know, they, they go through exchanges. And then the um the other alternative is that you know you have already self custodial systems that use uh validity proofs uh for instance uh, the stark x systems that give you already this sort of uh self custodial nature so it's like there are aspects there of blockchain you know ethos like the self custody aspect but then um it's all the information that goes on is very much shielded from the general public so the operator does know what's going on, but the operator does not have custody, and your information is shielded by virtue of the proofs from the general public. So you have some middle spot, which is a pretty nice sweet spot because you get very good UX experience and very low cost, and it does give you a, a modicum of uh, privacy today.
Interesting. And, and would you say that like, and maybe this applies more to the mixer kind of part, but yeah, I think the way most people think of like privacy currently is kind of like this. Okay. Um, they think of it, I think, as more of like a black and a white thing. Like, okay, this information is public, this information is private, versus it being a more of like a spectrum. Like, for example, like the mixing thing, that's kind of a spectrum, right? Because the more funds you have going in and out, the more private, theoretically, it is, right? Some level, I would say that all privacy technology is more about uh, these grades and levels because, right. um, yeah, your single transaction can be made fully shielded in a very mathematical sense using ZK technology. But, you know, if you think of the way that chain analysis or, you know, uh, all kinds of viewers of the whole system look at it, they will look at other stuff. They wouldn't, they're not limited to just looking at a single transaction. They can look at, you know, shielded and transparent transactions. They can look at the anonymity set. They can look at a whole bunch of yeah. things that are external to that. So anyways, you're getting only some sort of partial privacy at any given point. Um, just because, you know, if people are trying to learn about you, there's a lot of stuff they can learn even outside of the what ZK prevents or protects. So I'd love to hear more than about kind of what you guys then are, are now doing um, at Starkware. Uh, maybe kind of, you can like maybe break down like the technical stack. Like you mentioned StarkX as one of the products already. Yeah. Um, and then maybe, you know, maybe mentioning what each kind of thing serves. Yeah. So, okay. Because we've been talking all the time about privacy and ZK, the first right. thing that uh, the listeners should should acknowledge is that when almost all of the discussion today about ZK in the context of uh, Web3 is there's something a bit uh, skewed. So people talk about, for instance, a ZK rollup, but then when they say Starknet is a ZK rollup, it's not about privacy at all. And actually the proofs that we put there are not even ZK proofs. So there's nothing about privacy going on in the ZK rollups. Um, and for historical reasons, you know, the, the, the term ZK that refers actually to privacy was slapped on to this whole area, whereas most of the action that's going on there is not about privacy because of, you know, these big UX problems. It is all about scalability. So from here on, um, I'm going to use, uh, I'm going to talk about validity proofs and I'll stop using uh, ZK proofs. Uh, for the mere reason that none of the proofs that Starkware's products are using today are ZK proofs. They are Stark proofs, they are validity proofs, and okay, what do they do? At the core, it's about integrity. It's about knowing that the right thing was done even when you're not watching. So these proofs, these validity proofs, in our case, these are Stark proofs, they assure you that by, by math, using math, you can be assured that the right thing is being done even when you're not watching. And the way it works is you use the magic of math in order to run a very efficient and succinct, think of it as some random inspection or random auditing process that um, has very high mathematical guarantees that it will report if anything is amiss, even while uh, doing it very succinctly. So like, here's, here's a way to think about it. 
Suppose you have some facility that is processing financial transactions and it's doing a million of those a day. And you're saying, and it just comes at the end of the day and says, you know what, here's the new state of accounts having after having processed a million transactions. Now, money being involved and people being people, you might worry, well, maybe maybe someone's, you know, skimming off the top or, you know, not reporting, misreporting, not acting with integrity. What if I could send an auditor to, you know, check a few things here and there and uh, tell me if everything's okay? Well, if you try to do this naively and you send an auditor team inside, you know, you send an auditor and she inspects a few things, you know, 10 or 20 transactions, um, she might not see if there is uh, something uh, amiss. Well, through the beauty of Stark Math, it turns out that for the same amount of effort, computational effort, you can send an auditor, which we call a verifier, to inspect what's been going on and come back and report with cryptographic certainty all of the steps that have been taken uh, during this day are fine. That's our core technology. And then it's packaged in a variety of different products that help scale blockchains. Gotcha. And, and that, I guess, would be kind of the different, like, StarkX, StarkNet. Is that kind of where those kind of come into place? Yeah. Flavors? Okay. Yeah. And maybe, uh, you know, I'll, I'll try to give, because I'm guessing that a lot of your listeners uh, are familiar with optimistic rollups, right? Probably. And they also use a form of uh, proofs. Um, so, so we have, like, two different kinds of proofs that I'll talk here about. There are, like, the fraud proofs, which are the optimistic rollups, and there are the validity proofs. So... Both of them serve the same purpose. The purpose is that of integrity, knowing that the right thing was done even when no one is watching. And the way uh, a fraud proof works is that basically um, you assume that you have some, you know, there's one party that is reporting the new state and you assume that there's some other trusted or incentivized party that is inspecting all of the transactions. So if something is amiss, this other party would know that there's a problem and then they would start this arbitration process of uh, of doing a binary search, like basically the trusted, um, you know, honest auditor knows that there is a lie, and this auditor now tries to expose the lie to the public. Um, and validity proofs for theoretically a similar amount of work allow the auditor to inspect uh, stuff without actually needing to observe everything that's going there on there. Gotcha. And, and I think that's kind of where you get the whole, like, uh, I think on Twitter, I, I see it the most. It's like, okay, would you rather trust math or incentives or like math or humans or something like that? Do you think that's like, a, that's like an accurate thing to ask? Because I, I feel like at the end of the day, it's all, you're kind of still trusting humans to a certain extent, no matter what. But yeah, at the end of, yeah, at the, end of the day, you're, you have, uh, you know, you can't do, there are many things you need to trust. You need to trust, uh, you know, the stuff that you read, the, the, the chips that your computer is using and a very large number of things. But then you abstract it away because these things, I would say, are common to different technologies, right? And uh, so let's assume everything there is fine. You know, the papers describe what you're doing. The chips are operating with integrity. So let's assume integrity on all these other parts. And then... Yeah, I would say that the big difference between uh, um, optimistic rollups and validity rollups is the difference between um, assuming uh, um, an economic uh, and security model 
where you say, I'm going to make sure that someone's watching this facility that's producing transactions, and I'm going to incentivize it so that it can run these arbitration. And in the that's that's the optimistic rollup case. And in the case of validity rollups, uh, the statement is okay. Whoever's running the facility, let them throw math at it, work harder, and generate something that would be impossible or cryptographically impossible for them to uh, generate if they hadn't been operating with integrity. Um, and there's room for both. Of course, and, and and I think I think probably a good a good question to ask here then is like, you know, in this case, you know, uh, your flavor of validity proofs, of course, as you mentioned, are stock proofs. Like, how how would that then differentiate from like, I guess, other zk proofs or other validity proofs out there? Um, you don't have to mention any names, uh, but like, is, you know, what, what what would be the main differentiator between Starks, I guess, and the other types of proofs? Is the question there? Yeah, so there, there. Um, so I wrote a, a very long blog post um, three or four years ago called uh, "The Cambrian Explosion of Cryptographic Proofs." And even though things have changed a lot since then, because you know science progresses, um, it's still somewhat relevant. I mean, you know, things change, but not that much. Um, the biggest uh, difference. So, so by now, there's like a huge, uh, a huge. Uh, Set of uh, set of different uh, ways to go about proofs, but there's still some. You know, the ones applied today in practice turn uh, fall into. Well, they use these things called commitment schemes, and there are like three families of commitment schemes that are used in practice. One, which is what Starks use, is uh, well, these are called IOP or interactive oracle proof based proofs, and most of them use uh, something called Fry, Fry protocol, um, which you know back in the math days, uh, the, you know some of the theorems there, those are exactly the theorems oh, that wow. I've been involved in. Um, wow. Yeah, and um, the other two families, the one, the the, the biggest contender that is used use, uses. Um, these things called KZG uh, commitment schemes uh, for um, and a lot of the snarks out there go under that term. And the third family uses things called uh, inner product arguments. So like three big families that are practically used today. And then there are many, many variants and a lot of things on them. Uh, the biggest difference between our family, the one that we stand by and the other two is that ours is the safest and most efficient. So safest, there's no number theoretic assumptions. The other two family have number theoretic assumptions. Uh, they're post-quantum secure, Starks, um, or the Fry-based IOPs, meaning if there's a quantum computer to, uh, tomorrow, it can break those other two systems, not this one. Um, there's no need for a trusted setup, which you do need in KZG. You do not need in the world of, uh, inter of, uh, of uh, inner product arguments. And then in terms of sheer efficiency, which you can think about, you know, number of computer cycles per uh, bit that you need to commit to, um, they're, I'd say, between one to two orders of magnitude more uh, efficient um, because they can use any, any arithmetic, any finite fields on. Now I'm throwing some math terms. 
But when you go to number theoretic uh, constructions, a little bit like, uh, you know, things like uh, RSA, uh, those are very slow primitives. So here's a story that maybe some of uh, your uh, listeners, of our listeners, know. Uh, when you um, do, when you go uh, and start an SSL session, which you always do uh, when you're today, when you're going on the internet. So there's a, there's a key sharing process that uses number theoretic constructions, but it's used only for generating a key because you need this very inefficient math to do it. And once you have this key, you move to this other system that does not use number theoretic constructions and it's way, way faster and you do that. So Starks are very similar in the building blocks to the um, you know, the more efficient stuff that you do after the handshake. And both the inner product arguments and the um, KZG commitments are more similar to the expensive handshaking uh, part that you don't want to do a lot of. So uh, that's sort of the lay of the land today from a very high level of view. And so does the, uh, do these kind of different types of, I guess, uh, you know, cryptographic kind of uh, proving schemes, do those have like an effect, I guess, on, like at the virtual machine level? Because um, I think for people who don't know, uh, like the Stark, Starkware ecosystem uses Cairo versus another language like Solidity or maybe even Rust. Uh, like, how does that affect that landscape? Okay, so um, that's a different uh, area of the story because um, all of these right. proof systems, you know, whether they are inner product based or KZG based or Fry based, they are universal and they can prove any computation and you can slap them on, you know, you can use them to prove the validity of any computation in any, uh, you know, virtual machine. So you can do it for x86, for uh, risk zero, for the Java virtual machine, uh, for the EVM. Okay. Now, what's common to all of these systems that are all of these uh, virtual machines that I discuss is they're amazing virtual machines. You know, they have a lot of languages that compile into them and everyone loves them as programmers, but they have one disadvantage. They were never built from the ground up with proofs in mind. You know, do I need to prove it later on? And because of that, when it comes to proving, they incur these horrendous uh, uh, blow-up factors that just slow things down. So they're very convenient to write code for, but if you want to write code that then you go on and prove its integrity using a proof system, you'll be paying dearly. What happened with Cairo is that uh, we designed from the ground up a virtual machine whose main uh, attribute uh, on top of being what's called a universal machine or a Turing complete machine is that it is extremely lean when it comes to um, uh, proving stuff about it. In any proof system, you would use it. So it sort of acknowledges that you're going to craft things using finite fields and polynomials. And because of this, and constraints defined as polynomials. And because of this, you get something, you get the, the core machine has less than 50 constraints that define it. Whereas if you take a x86 or risk zero, you'll probably be, be looking at, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of constraints, uh, just because, you know, no one thought about or no one tried to optimize for proof size. So because we wanted something that would scale um, best, and for the longest, you know, horizon, 
we had to build this new machine. Um, and that's how Cairo came about. And I think we're, you know, very, very proud with the outcome. And this is, uh, this is what positions us to uh, continue being the most uh, scalable proving technology for uh, years to come. And I think, uh, I, I think maybe to like, you know, in, in the past, because I mean, I, I've, I've been in the scaling space technically for two years now, you know, here at Off Chain Labs. And I think it's so weird how the industry kind of shifts. It's kind of like, oh, like, this is what we want to see in layer twos, and like, you know, versus this is what we want to see now in layer twos, right? I feel like back then, we just wanted EVM equivalents. And that's, I feel like, but like going into 2024 now, I think like I think actually the best way for Ethereum to position itself at the layer two level is to have these different systems that differentiate itself from not only Ethereum and the other kind of generalized layer twos, but also from the other layer ones that are coming out with, you know, I'm sure you've seen on Twitter, like this whole kind of alternate VM narrative. And it's kind of funny how like you guys have been building in that for such a long time. You, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you've created this almost like this like very loyal cultish in a way in a good way uh like following for Cairo. yeah it's first of all it's a damn good programming language i hear yeah. that uh, developers i'm not a developer myself and i'm of course biased and if you're a developer do your own research and try it out take it for a spin but i hear more and more the developers are saying that it is a better uh programming language for writing smart contracts than solidity is I'll repeat it again. It's a better programming language for developing smart contracts than Solidity is. And it's not necessarily surprising. You know, um, I'm old enough to remember BASIC and Pascal. They were amazing languages, but you know, then the world evolves and people build newer languages that are just better, more convenient to work in. It's not that anything was wrong with uh, BASIC and Pascal. There was, you know, better things came along. So, you know, in five years, there's going to be a better programming language. And Solidity is already at it for, uh, you know, eight years or so. Um, and Cairo is better as a programming language, period. It's safer. It's more ergonomic. Now, in addition to that, um, I'm pretty confident that uh, during 2024 um, on StarkNet, we will see capacity for, uh, you know, 1,000 to 2,000 TPS um, going on for, for weeks um, with, with proof being generated with uh, very little impact on block space uh, on Ethereum uh, chugging along. And I think the only way we'll see in 2020, the only place where we'll see in 2024, let's say 2000 TPS for transfers week long uh, will be on StarkNet, uh, at least among the validity rollups. I don't think that this can be achieved with any EVM based chain because just the proving technology is gonna be too clogged for that. Um, and And okay, so it takes, it's harder to build uh, something like a brand new programming language and all the tooling for it, but we did it because we need to uh, reach really massive scale that is something that it far surpasses what you can do if you start with the EVM. Oh, totally. And, and, and I think it's, it's kind of funny because, I mean, again, obviously this is coming from someone on the community side, but like I'm kind of seeing... It's what our what our engine team is going through now with trying to build out stylus, uh, kind of you know, the ability for devs to code in Rust, C, C plus plus, and stuff like that, and compile it down to Wasm. And I'm like, because because I remember I remember talking to them about it in the beginning. Okay, like 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 why can't someone just come in and start coding in C like right away? And 
I guess like, you know, as someone on the outside, you don't really think about all the dependencies and the tooling that you need actually to actually onboard devs and have them start start to work with it. Uh, I mean, like you guys have been doing that for like the past two years, I guess, with Cairo at this point, or probably more than two years. I should say, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. Uh, onboarding devs, external devs uh, for two years or a bit less, uh, bit, working yeah. with Cairo a little bit longer. Uh, right. But internal, but first it was internally, so we didn't have to build too many, uh, you know, external tooling devs. But yeah, this is picking up speed, and certainly it's the um, it's the hard part, right? Getting all of the tooling and the environments and things that can make devs just very efficient at their work. Um, this is the part that's taking uh, considerable time and requires a very large community. Um, I'm happy that we have a very large and excellent community. Um, uh, which hopefully will expand a bit more uh, as time goes by. And uh, yeah. So what are your thoughts then on, um, you mentioned the Cambrian explosion of proofs. Um, I think another to topic of conversation has been the Cambrian explosion of rollups, uh, kind of different rollup stacks kind of emerging now and people more or less kind of just, not, you know, forking a stack and building their own thing. Do you see their, like, do you think there'll be too many chains? Do you think it's it's like we should be scaling at like one layer versus making multiple? Like, what what are your thoughts on that? I don't know. I think the market will decide. Um, I mean, a few years ago, the question was, are there too many coins? <laughs> I, I don't even know the answer to that. Like, the markets decide. Uh, you know, are there too many companies? Are there too many countries? Are there too many? That's that's the nice thing about uh, free markets that uh, you know people will build stuff and then the markets will decide. Um, let's put it this way. I, I don't feel a need to make a, a prediction on whether there'll be a lot or few. I could argue both ways. I guess if I have to, like probably these you know exponential decrease or long tail uh, models explain most of what goes on. So there's probably going to be a very large number, but a lot of the action or value or whatnot is going to, you know, be on the first uh, few and um, that's fine. Totally. I, I think the, um, yeah, it's, it's a good point. I, I think, I think to me, what, what I always try to come back to is like, yes, we're building these really, really cool systems. Like, I mean, it's, and like you said, there's tons of companies now, tons of teams doing it. Um, like, so the whole, like the, 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 uh, the decentralized, the decentralization of it and the ability for the average consumer to kind of contribute to, um, proving some of these systems or contributing in the system itself, I think is what I value a lot. Like the fact that I can run an Ethereum validator and essentially be part of the Ethereum network to me is the coolest thing in the world, in my opinion, um, especially after the proof of stake stuff. Uh, like, you. right. So like. Where are you guys currently at with uh, with the decentralization, I guess, of, of, of StarkNet um, and anything that relates to it? So um, we're, I think that over 2024, we'll make uh, significant steps in uh, decentralizing the sequencer and the prover um, in building things like uh, a fee market uh, that allows to deal with congestion and then uh, a mempool, which allows, you know, goes along with the fee market and prioritizing, and then on to peer-to-peer uh, -peer networks, and then uh, sequencers and a consensus protocol. Uh, that's where we're heading. Um, we want to have the sequence of steps we, we 
decided on a few years ago was first we need uh, functionality, which we've achieved with uh, Cairo One. Then we need to focus on performance, which is what we're currently doing. I mentioned, you know, the, my hope to reach a uh, thousand TPS or more consistently for a week uh, without uh, Ethereum noticing. By the way, these levels, well, not a thousand TPS, but uh, drastically large levels of TPS consistently over long periods of time is something we've been already doing. For many years on our Starkex systems, you know, we've been minting within a single block of Ethereum upwards of uh, 600,000 NFTs for Immutable. You know, many years ago, we've been doing this. Uh, millions and millions of NFTs minted over a single block. So this very, very massive uh, scale is the next uh, frontier, uh, which will come also with reduced costs for uh, uh, users. And uh, then the next phase is going to be uh, decentralizing the sequencer because, uh, well, and, and the sequencer sort of makes sense. You first need the developers to start building. For that, you need the functionality. Then you need the performance for users to uh, use it. And also you need the system that to be performant enough before you start um, uh, building its uh, decentralized peer-to-peer -peer network structure. So that will come uh, over 2024. And do you think there's going to be a point where, um, like, you know, I'll be able to probably not the same size as like my, my like Raspberry Pi over here. It's not a Raspberry Pi. It's like an Intel Note, I think. Um, I think, think there'll be a point where like the average user can kind of come in and, um, whether it be for Snarkin or other ZK systems, uh, like actually kind of run like uh, validity proofs, like I guess like, generate validity proofs on their on their computers, whether it be like with a GPU or something like that. I think that's like the one thing that I that that I think. You know, I think currently, currently you need a relatively beefy computer to do that, right? Well, uh, first of all, there are two parts. There's the verifying part. Where, you know, how do I know that the right thing is being done? And this uh, you can already do today on a very, very small and slow computer. You can verify the proof that, you know, all transactions in Bitcoin and Ethereum have operated, have been performed with integrity, all of them. So this can already be done on the verifier level, which is the important thing for users. It's a little bit like, you know, how do I know that Ethereum is operating with integrity? So right. the Stark analog of that is already very easy to run on, uh, on any computer. Now, regarding the proving, well, here it's really about scale. So you can download uh, the Stone Prover, uh, compile it on your computer, uh, any laptop that, that exists today, and you can generate uh, reasonable proofs for you know, a number of steps of computation. The reason you want to use uh, Starks is you want to reach massive scale, right? You want each block to contain whatever, a million transactions or so on. So for instance, right now, um, each uh, leaf of our StarkNet system um proves basically and we use recursion you proves mm. 20 million cairo steps which is a huge number of steps now you want to maximize the number of steps that you allow per block and we do this by using um not the biggest of the biggest machines we have recursion for breaking things up but you want to use a pretty strong machine because that's how you'll get better scale so just to answer your question you can today run a Stark Prover on your laptop and get meaningful results. If you want to maximize scale, which is also to maximize economic efficiency and, pub and you know, uh, social welfare and all of the good things that you want to optimize, uh, you want the 
end users to run stark verifiers, which they can done for they can do today for any amount of computation. And you want the uh, provers to be on pretty big machines, but that's fine because uh, they can't cheat these provers. Um, Got you. No, no, that makes sense. Yeah, and and and, and I think like. And I think like that that role in and of itself, being able to kind of verify what's actually being created at the user level is is like so important. I mean, again, I think most people will not the average user won't care. They'll 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 fire up a wallet and they'll just start transacting. But for for the for the nerds out there like myself, you know, I love that. <laughs> well, it's the it's the defining uh, it's the defining property of a blockchain, really. About exactly. uh, it's the ability of you as an end users on very simple means verify the integrity of the whole system with very very few trust assumptions this is what makes blockchains great 100 100 percent. and i have to ask too it's not binding by the way is there a world where maybe off-chain labs starkware you know some sort of collaboration of technology be a hybrid of like proofs or who knows i don't <laughs> i hope so look um i have and we our team has very high respect for Ed and Steven and Harry and, uh, you know, the whole team. We, we also get along very well. And I think, uh, you know, here's the thing. Like, there are, I think the world of uh, roll-ups is divided like this. There yeah. are the cool cats that, uh, <laughs> you know, claim to be loved by Ethereum elites. Okay. But, you know, um, they get, so, so they get slack, you know, no one looks at their minor or major faults. And I'm talking about, uh, you know, optimism and uh, ZK sync. And then there are the, um, the nerdy smart guys who are not as cool, but, uh, do the hard work. And I think Arbitrum and Starknet fit that profile. So. It is what it is. So we get along pretty well. Yeah, and I do hope we'll collaborate more. I'm happy to be a nerd. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, so then maybe kind of jumping into a little more um, uh, outside of the uh, start, the stock work kind of kind of thing. Um, do you think that like there's a way? Maybe it's not at the L two level. Maybe it's actually an upgrade that has to happen on Ethereum itself that we can like solve state growth. Because I feel like that's one of those things that we're not really addressing as an issue because it doesn't feel like it's an immediate thing that we'll feel, but it's like the long-term thing of like, hey, I can't, I won't be able to run a computer with like multiple terabytes of uh, storage I mean, at some point. Um, but what do you think? Hmm. I think it's all about uh, pricing it in the right way. Uh, well, there's a part of it that is uh, like... You know, do we want or need um, all the videos of cats to be um, on 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 a blockchain? Right. Well, if we do, then we need to pay for that, and that's going to be costly. Um, probably we don't. Maybe we need, uh, you know, the video of the cat that is, like, very, very important to us. I don't know what it is. So maybe that needs to be on a blockchain. Um but it's about cost and pricing. If people do need JPEGs and videos and things to be actually on a blockchain, well, you know, you're going to have tens or hundreds of thousands of computers that need to store it. And then someone needs to pay for that. And um, so it's, I think it's an economic question of uh, how much data do you need 
um, blockchains to keep. Um, and if you're willing, if the world is willing to pay for that. Um, so it's mostly an economic question. I, I think that was actually the last I had heard about maybe like the conversations around that, where it's like, if like, or, or maybe, maybe it was a little different. It was like, if like X data hasn't been accessed within the last year or so, then like that's kind of parsed out and like you need to pay a lot more to get it. Is that kind of same thing we're talking about or? It's it's you know in this space of uh, of uh, economic solutions to it, this is something like a rental model, right? It says right. Uh, you know you if you don't pay your rent, then it's either put in storage, you know, like one of these long term storage things that are more costly and you need to pay more for it. Uh, that's that's an option uh, of of like addressing this thing, but you, you see it, it does involve some economic model for you know what are people willing to pay and what is the uh, a good way to pay those who are actually storing it because you need also to pay right if you put it on long-term storage but then you don't compensate uh, the long-term storage facilities then they will just shut down and you won't find it anymore so like somehow the economics of it have to be figured out like what is the world willing to pay interesting yeah i think that's definitely i feel like there's going to be eip 4844 first and that's coming out and then that that'll yeah. probably yeah yeah but it's this problem is gonna is gonna accompany us for a while like what is what is uh you charge too much and then the system gets stalled you charge too little and then you have a dos problem right because people just mm. dump a whole bunch of data on the chain and the issue is that um there's something non-linear about it so each byte by itself um doesn't necessarily hurt so much, but it's the accumulation of those and the fact that you also make a payment once, but now the burden of storing it is right now to infinity and you know taken by all nodes that are in the network. So these things have to be solved in some way. Right. Well, I think um, per perfect point to move on to a little more, to end off maybe a little bit on the, on the, on the cryptographic note, uh, since that's where we started. Um, I wanted to ask you personally, what is the coolest breakthrough that you've seen in cryptography thus far, in or outside of crypto? It doesn't have to be related. Well, I still remember when I was uh, an undergraduate and I heard for the very first time this uh, lecture, I, I had the privilege of sitting in a class by the great uh, uh, Professor Michael Rabin, uh, Rabin, you know, Turing Award winner and uh, done a bunch of stuff. And uh, he taught us the RSA algorithm, the whole notion of public key cryptography, how Alice and Bob sitting in two different places can nevertheless, uh, even though Eve is sitting in between and listening to all their messages, how they can still communicate in private. It's just such a beautiful uh, uh mind-blowing concept that this is possible so to me that's like uh you know it's a, it's a relatively simple protocol there are things that are much more elaborate but it's the fact that you can actually explain it to uh or versions of it to high school students yeah. adds to its beauty totally I, I think back back in my my uh i was doing content creation before working here I think I did make a video explaining like the whole like Alice and Bob situation. Um, I remember like, and then the cool part is obviously I have to read about it before explaining it. 
And I remember reading about it. I'm like, this is actually amazing. It's it's yeah. it's like you say. It's like it's math, but it like works in a very ma- like magical way somehow. You know? Yeah, that's that's the, like to me, math is uh, it's not the high school stuff where there's a lot of numbers involved and you have you right. know to run these calculations uh, time and again and. It's really the sort of, uh, you know, eureka thing, the elegance, the aha, wow, you know, this is so unexpected. And, you know, here's something really strange that's happening that I wouldn't believe could happen. That is, you know, the, the beauty of it in my, in my mind. I still have nightmares uh, trying to do uh, partial differential equations in a, in a, in a school. <laughs> <laughs> I never took a course in that. So, you know, it was okay. the horror. Um, you mentioned it earlier as well uh, in the show, but um, quantum computers, how close do you think that is to becoming a reality? I don't know. I hope that they're very <laughs> close because, you know, Starks are post-quantum secure. So, like, it would be really great for Starkware and Starknet if uh, post-quantum computers at scale uh, appear tomorrow. It would Because I mentioned, like, three different families. So the other two families just completely go away. Like they, they are broken by quantum computers. So I would, I hope <laughs> that they emerge tomorrow, but I, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because it's one of those things that whenever, like, you know, I think the, um, if, you, you know, if you ask like anyone who's into crypto, I think like the, the consensus of the average, I'm sure crypto user is like, okay, once that comes out, like crypto's dead, like, like every blockchain ceases to function. No, Do you think that's true or is that? Part. That's it. Uh, they, well, uh, there, there's a lot of modifications needed. But you can do pretty much uh, almost everything um, with Starks. Uh, you know, you could have signatures with Starks. You could have uh, um, you know, everything that you need. Uh, you need to replace things, but it's fine. Like right. it would be very good, actually, very, very good. But because that would also technically have a impact on things outside of crypto too, right? That would that would impact, of course, everything online. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of the core uh, uh, technology that runs the internet right now um, would have to uh, move to other technologies. Uh, you need to have new key sharing uh, um, handshake uh, protocols. Um, yeah, but there are some candidates, you know, based on lattices and other things. So doable. You guys should just have like have like rename the tagline Starkware Quantum Proof. That's all. That's all you need. <laughs> well, we use the word quantum here and there uh, quite a lot. So you know, quantum leap, uh, all kinds of uh, yeah. Look at that! Awesome. Well, Ellie, I really appreciate you for coming on today. Uh, it's been a pleasure having you on, and uh, yeah, look forward to potentially collabing in the future. Likewise, thank you, Hunter. Thank you for watching this week's episode of Beneath the Layers. If you're interested in listening to more make sure to check us out on YouTube or on any of the other major podcasting platforms. Also, we're hiring. So if you're interested in working on cutting edge tech, scaling Ethereum, etc., make sure to apply at jobs.lever.co forward slash off-chain labs. Additionally, a disclaimer, nothing in this podcast should be taken or understood as financial advice of any kind, uh, and all opinions expressed by the host, myself, or the guests are solely their opinions, my opinions, and do not reflect the opinions of off-chain labs as a company. All that being said, thank you for watching. See you guys in the next one.